0: Hey, I'm Karine Levy, and this is Script Chat, the podcast that connects you to your favorite authors through insightful conversations about their latest and greatest works. In this episode of Script Chat, one of the most celebrated novelists working today, New York Times bestselling author Laura Lippman, sat down with novelist and Cosmo Magazine's editor-at-large John Searles to chat about creating a new killer genre, femme noir, with Lippmann's new novel, Sunburn. You can read Sunburn for free on Scribd with your subscription, and if you're not yet a Scribd member, you can read for free for 30 days by downloading the Scribd app or visiting Scribd.com. That's s-c-r-i-b-d.com. And with that, here's John Searles in conversation with author Laura Littman at WeWork Grand Central in New York.
1: So the last time I saw Laura, I never get to say this about people because usually it's like the last time I saw you was on the E train or something, <laughs> but the last time I saw you was in Italy at a writer's event, which was... Very glamorous and fun, and we had a good time, so it's nice to see you again here in New York City. It's true.
2: The last time we saw each other was in Tuscany. Yeah,
1: we probably both very weighed grand. 20 pounds more because we were eating a lot. But uh, congratulations on the new book, Sunburn. I have to say it's one of my favorite of your books. It is, it's a departure for you, I feel. Having read many of your books and promoted many of your books in the pages of Cosmo and also on the Today Show for years, you know I'm a super fan. Uh, this one is sort of a leaner, meaner, Noirish, dark. I mean you always have darkness, but it feels dark in sort of a different way. And I love the use of the present tense, particularly because I feel like it just keeps it moving at such a, a fast pace. And so I want there's a lot of questions I have about how you came to craft it, the character of Polly, uh, the other characters in the book. So but I wanna actually go in order. If you're a reader and opening the book, you see also by Laura Lipman. and if you're listening to this, you can't see, but there are I think are there 22 books here? I tried to count on the way be here. 22. 22 it be other books here from Hush Hush, After I'm Gone, and When She Was Good, The Girl in the Green Raincoat, Baltimore Blues, Charms. I mean, how does it feel to have written? So this is 23.
2: That was number 23 overall. 23
1: yeah. novels. Is well, I think it's
2: 22 novels, one book of short stories, and one novella technically, but it's 23 books.
1: Wow. How does? I I, I don't know if that's an, a question you can answer, but. How do you feel looking back on your career, where yeah. most novelists maybe are l- lucky to do one, three, five, to do have done that many?
2: You know, I'll be honest, I actually feel pretty good about it. Yeah. I feel that. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're like, oh, I, I guess, you know, a better person would say something, you know, modest and self-deprecating. I'm actually really interested in the fact that as a culture, we don't seem to know how to feel about people who write fast. And there's sometimes confused, well, how good could it be? Whereas when someone can run the 100-yard dash really quickly, we don't say that, well, how That's good an athlete could they be? And when it comes to some literary writers, Philip Roth was actually really, really prolific until he decided to stop writing. Updike was too. And I think there's a tendency to say, well, they're literary writers and they're exceptions and they're the best. And I'm a crime writer. I very intentionally inhabit a genre role. That said, I have really mixed feelings when I see someone say, she churns out a book a year. Or churn is
1: a bad word, churn... unless you're making butter. Yeah. <laughs> then, then it's a bad Pumps.
2: word. <laughs> I mean, it, it always sounded to me like that the, being a prolific writer is this <clears throat> weird burden to bear in which Somehow people are like, well, if you're really productive, how good you could be? And it seems to me they assume that the people who aren't that productive, they're working so hard on their books. And I know some writers who aren't really productive, who write a book about every five years. And you're, I would maintain your speed is your speed, like your body type is your body type. Are you an ectomorph? Are you a mesomorph? Are you fast twitch? or slow twitch? You're kind of born with that. And so I don't feel superior to people who are slow
1: you're speaking for yourself in your own experience right. but at the
2: same time i also don't get why people are so willing to believe that someone who publishes a novel only once every
0: five somehow years better yeah. like, like
2: they've spent every waking moment yeah. on that novel and i always say well first of all go check imdb because a lot of the people who are producing a novel only once every five years are writing screenplays and, and
1: doing other things doing other yeah. things
2: it's just, it's interesting to me. So yeah, I'm really proud of it. And
1: when you look back, do you have favorites, ones you regret, ones you, like, is that a weird question? I don't know. Like
2: No, like, it's like, I'm like the little old lady who lived in a shoe and I have 23 kids <laughs> and it keeps going. Every book could be better. And that is not self-deprecation. I don't know an honest writer who looks back and says, I can't make that better. I think if you reach the point where you look back and you say, well, that was a perfect book then why would you keep writing?
1: You told me a story once, and I I will mangle this so you can correct me, but I just have a memory of you getting on a bus and going. You got an assignment to go to maybe Texas or something, and you brought a book with you, and you hadn't written a book yet. Tell that story, and then I want to ask you a question. I want to ask a question to that girl, that woman, young woman on that bus.
2: So I got on a bus to go to my first job interview, I was at journalism school at Northwestern. I knew it was a
1: good story, I told you. <laughs>
2: and it was a hard time to find a job, it was the early 80s, and the country was in recession in places. I, what I really wanted was a job in New England. What I got was a job interview in Waco, Texas. But in they West said, Texas. well, you we got to interview face-to-face, we're not going to pay you to interview face-to-face, but you can't get the job if you don't show up. Wow. And so, like, I guess I got to go by Greyhound bus. And I got on a Greyhound bus in Chicago. And I remember the books I was carrying with me included 100 Years of Solitude, The Awakening by Kate Chopin, and Love's Lovely Counterfeit by James Cain. There must have been another one because, I mean, it was 23 hours on the bus down there. Oh, wow. And, you know, another 23 back. So there's yeah. a lot of reading to be done. Yeah. And a Long, long trip. But, yeah, um, Love's Lovely Counterfeit by Kane, I think, was definitely an influence. I mean, Kane, in general, was an influence on Sunburn.
1: Clearly, yes, clearly an influence on this. And that's, I guess, the question I want to ask. Two questions. So if If someone were to say to that young woman on the bus, someday you'll have written 23 books, be a best-selling crime novelist who's won all these awards, would you you have been like, yeah, that sounds right, or would you have been like, holy shit, like, how would you have...
2: I would have been delighted. I would have been like, holy shit, that's great. That's exactly what I want. But I would have had such a skewed idea about what it means to be a published writer.
1: And can you expand on that? What do you mean versus the the vision you had for it and the reality of it? Well,
2: I think I was someone who thought if I could just publish a book, everything in my life will be perfect. Isn't that the fantasy (laughs) for a lot of people? I think I'm going to publish a novel and then I'll be perfect it's a novel in some ways is sort of like one of those big self-improvement plans. I'm going to do this and then everything will be perfect. I will be perfect. And one thing I noticed after I published my first book, I didn't notice it in myself. I noticed it in other people. So I figured I must be doing it too. A lot of people are really insufferable after they write their first book. (laughs) Have you noticed that? (laughs) Have you ever noticed that? Come on, you must have.
1: Sometimes, yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And so you have like this, first year or, or ho- however long it goes on where it's like you're the first person who ever did this and you just can't stop talking about your book and yourself and your book and yourself and I noticed this in another writer but what I really noticed you're not going to name the name no, I, <laughs> what I really noticed is that then that writer changed and became a much more delightful person to be uh-huh. around it was like you know what he had first authoritis I probably had it, a lot of people, not everyone gets it, but a lot of people with that first book, it's just such a monumental effort, and you feel as if no one's ever done it before and no one will ever do it again, and of course the the comedy, the irony, is that your first book in general is probably not going to be your best book, you know, you go back again if you read, I, I figure the reason Harper Lee never truly wrote another novel was because Are you gonna follow To Kill a Mockingbird? Why why would you try? Yeah, you know. And I see people who write these really, really great first novels, and on one level I envy them, and on another level, I started at what I would call—I mean, if I graded myself, I would—I would give my first novel a B. Some people would have given it less. I would give it a B. Okay. And people over the years have come up to me and said, "I hope you don't mind." always a great start always very promising yeah i hope you don't mind if i say you got a lot better and And what i say to that is well why would i mind that because what are the choices yeah i got worse that's not good i've been wildly erratic yeah no i would hope that every book i get better that's my goal yeah i feel like you know there's no ceiling no matter how high you achieve speaking for all writers wouldn't you always want the to next do better. book to be better? You've done that with your books.
1: Well, back to you. Do you still feel when you finish each book, are you like, I always feel like, oh my God, I can't believe I did I literally get down on the ground and like kiss the floor and like, thank God. Like, I mean, do you feel every time or this sense of like, was it Jack Torrance in The Shining would like light a <laughs> cigarette and pop a bottle of champagne or I forgot what his ritual was, but something like that, right? Or no, <laughs> I'm thinking not The Shining. Misery. In misery. misery. That's what I'm thinking, yeah
2: the in the this is the existential dilemma of being a writer is that even if you can write a book a year you're only happy one day a year you're <laughs> only happy, happy one day, day. And, and what's really funny is now that That's we're all connected question. through twitter and facebook i feel such a strange rage toward my friends on the day they announce that they finished a book even though like i like i know it's like i'm like you're, I'm in the middle. I was yeah. like, oh, I, like I envy them so much. Like you get with each book you get the one I mean there are a lot of little milestones that you can celebrate. but there's basically one day where you're I have finished it. I mean for me that's the day that I send it to my editor in full. Yeah. And massive revisions will come and go and I'm proud of myself on the day that I submit the massive revisions. And I'm proud or happy the day that I get through copy edits. And I'm proud and happy when I get through the galleys. But there's one day that I'm really, really, really happy. Happy. One day, and it's not, I've slowed down a little bit. A book a year pace is getting harder for me to maintain.
1: Well, you have a busy life, and you have a child, and you You
2: just commitments. I'm just going more slowly. And with like sort of unapologetically, so going back to this idea of being a first time author, I feel like a lot of writers or a lot of people turns out a lot of people have just been waiting to have their diva moment and it's right around the time they sign their first book contract.
1: Oh, and then it all comes out. And they want
2: to be the they want to be creative and they want to they feel entitled to experience life as this creative, unpredictable, needy, tempestuous person. And and I'm really not that at all. Yeah. But I feel like every writer when you reach a certain point in your career where you, you know, Two, three, four books in, you're getting successful, you're getting things done. I feel like you get one diva card to play. And my diva card was, you know what? I'm gonna sit with one book until it's finished. Ah. And if it, I used to like send my book off and I was working full time. I had no time to waste. It was like, I just sent book number three off to my editor. So I'll start book number four while I'm waiting for my editor to get back to me. Wow, like, that's impressive. Like, I, well, it was in some ways self-sabotaging. I think I think my books got better when I said, you know what, there's only going to be one book in my head at a time. That was my diva card. That was the one I played, which is I will have one book in my head at a time. You and know, Then
1: before you move on to the next. Before I
2: move on to the next one.
1: Well, going back to Sunburn, just going in order. So you open the book, you see also by Laura Littman, you see all these other titles. But then you see, and I always wonder, and I always want to ask writers about it, for Anne and Michael, because in real life I root for happy endings. And so I always look at writers' photos, dedications, the jacket, all this stuff. And I want to talk about the story, obviously. But just going in order, if you're a reader opening this, I know who you dedicated this mm-hmm. book to. Why is this book for?
2: So this is for our very good friend, our mutual friend, mm-hmm. Anne Hood. It's kind of, you've known Anne much longer than I have. Yeah,
1: I was a student of Anne's at NYU. And yeah, Million years ago
2: Anne yeah. and I met in 2007 and I feel like it was so much longer ago than that because then again I was reading Anne back when I was in my 20s reading uh, her and envying her because the idea of being a young novelist I didn't get to be that I had to be a lot of things but Anne was publishing when she was in her 20s yeah and okay. she you know she yeah. had published somewhere off the coast of Maine and she's gorgeous and it's like curse you Anna <laughs> and then I meet her in 2007 and She's read me, I've read her, and I mean everybody loves Anne, first of all. She's That's a very just lovable automatic. Person. But I really yeah. did feel like, you know, okay, I'm meeting a bit it was a bit of a soul, you know, soulmate, you know, yeah. it's like kind of like Anne of Avonlea and Diana. She has <laughs> a real
1: warmth about her. Yeah. yeah,
2: everybody wants to be her best friend. And so when I was writing this book, I realized that I needed to understand a lot of things about the mind of a person trained to be a chef. Okay. And Anne's boyfriend at the time, Michael Roman, yeah. was that person. He's like kind of perfect. I mean, when you're writing, the best people to talk to are people who have expertise who also understand writing. Yes. For example, Alifair Burke is my go-to person on legal stuff. Oh yeah. Because she's a former prosecutor who's also a novelist. So that she understands how to play with things. Whereas you can talk to people who are great and they're wonderful, but they're not novelists. So they don't get the concept of yeah. play. You'll yes. be like, well, you can't do that. That would that would be very unlikely.
0: And
1: like, no, I can like, well, figure like my...
2: play, play with me. Like, you know, but let's bend the, the universe The What Florida. if questions, yeah. And um, so Michael, I needed to talk to Michael about how to make what I call the grilled cheese of seduction, which is a very big feature of yeah. this novel. <laughs> yes. And I wanted to talk to him about, like I have this idea about what would happen if you finally chopped the bacon. And Michael ultimately agreed to read the entire novel to sort of get inside the head of this character, Adam Bosk. And he picked up on things. He said, tell me what the kitchen looks like. And there's another chapter where I had, I was like doing this wordplay where Adam is making stock and that becomes taking stock. And yeah. It becomes um, this, and there's
1: a, it, so, it, where it says, it's at the root of the... Well, Phrase yeah. that's where it comes from, but Michael, and it's where Michael, am I in life? Yeah. Where am I going? How did I get here? Yeah. And,
2: and Michael said to me, "Real chefs don't think that way. Making stock is so automatic that it's like thinking about I'm breathing now. You just do it. Yeah. you just something you do it." And said, but you he,
1: still have it in.
2: He's yeah. breaking the bones. He's roasting the bones, uh, which yeah. in a book with fire is fantastic. Yeah, yeah.
1: you know, it's like Adds oh, that works too. Darkness. So yeah,
2: Michael read the whole thing and and kind of vetted every cooking detail and you know ultimately gosh it's about a year ago almost to the day I don't remember the exact date I ended up marrying them
1: not I, in a threesome way everybody
2: threesome. <laughs> <laughs> I was the minister I got my just
1: to be clear <laughs> universal life and
2: I I came up here to New York and it was it was right around this time because it's like this perfect little April day does that mean
1: I can confess to you right now like sins or not. No, No, you're not that. You're not. No,
2: I'm not. I'm not that good. good. Okay. So, so yeah, I, you know, one thing about writing, one of the good things about writing more than twenty books is you get to dedicate books to a lot of people. Yeah. And I've circled back. My husband's gotten two, and he's my second husband. My first husband has one. And you know, it's really funny. People said to me at one point, as my books are going back to new printings or new covers, my UK publisher asked me at one point if I wanted to eliminate the dedication to my first husband, a man I divorced, and if I wanted to omit him from, like, the acknowledgements, and I said, these books are historical records. Like, whatever happened in my marriage in that year, I felt great about dedicating that book to him, and I would never take that away. Like, I'm not trying to update the technology in the books. You know, with a career that goes back to 1997, when nobody had a smartphone, yeah. to today it's like you just sort of you understand these books are historical records in many ways and sometimes they're my historical record so
1: in your life and yeah. things you live
2: no i thought now i realize i have no idea who i'm going to dedicate the next book to
1: well i'm right here obviously <laughs> obviously
2: you're right oh gosh I mean, what was I the thinking? answer is in front
1: of you um okay so now let's turn the page and i want to go back to the, my james Kane question before because i remembered when i was reading this book. You telling me that story of reading James Cain, and I couldn't remember which, if it was Postman or or Mildred Pierce, or which one it was that you took. So at that time, do you remember that book? Because there was such clearly an influence on this story of Postman Always Rings Twice. Do you remember? Do you remember being on that bus and that book blowing you away, or was it? Well, I've been that came later? It was
2: the last Cain book I read in a group of six. I'd been reading him. Since the beginning of that year, my sister had given me these six cane paperbacks. Uh And I started with Postman, and I read Mildred Pierce, and there was Double Indemnity, The Butterfly, Serenade, and Love's Lovely Counterfeit. And, you know, my mind was just blown. I was like, this is amazing stuff. I love the style. I liked him better than I liked Raymond Chandler, better than I liked Hammett, probably on a par with Ross McDonald."
1: Because you felt they were more nuanced or more gritty?
2: Hammett is just, Hammett's terrific, but I don't have an emotional thing with Hammett. I have more of a cool admiration, appreciation. Chandler is amazing, but Chandler wanted to write about a knight, you know, in his famous essay, The Simple Art of Murder. He wanted to talk about, he wanted to write a world in which your main character is slightly better than everybody else. Marlowe is, you know, supposed to be the untarnished yeah. night a man with a code uh, and, and Chandler wrote that in everything that we call art there must be this quality of redemption which I just don't agree with I'm very uninterested in redemption
1: because you feel like it's done too obviously sometimes in, in books or do you just feel like because it does seem like in terms of redemption, there does seem in many books like, oh, now I need my epiphany and my turning it around, So, or is it nothing to do with that? So you know? I,
2: I came out of journalism, and I should have looked this quote up since I invoked it about a week ago, and we believe it was I have stone, my husband and I, but there is this famous quote in journalism that the role of a journalist is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And I've kind of carried that over into fiction. I don't like to flatter my readers. I don't like to make them feel cozy. I don't like to wrap them up in a big warm hug and say, oh, look, there are these terrible murders and these terrible things happen. But it's okay. The world is fine and you're fine. And I don't want you to ever think about anything you've done or said or thought that might be not right. Yeah. Like, no, I want you to think about those things. I live in Baltimore. And if you know the world of Thomas Harris and Hannibal Lecter really well, Hannibal Lecter is from Baltimore. And when I'm sitting in my house reading a Thomas Harris novel, which I do because I love and admire him, and we, by the way, Thomas Harris was also a journalist in Waco. Oh, wow. So who knows what's going on there? I love those books. But when I'm sitting in an armchair in my house reading about Hannibal Lecter, I'm not scared. Like if I go throw my door open, Animal actor's not out there. Because it
1: seems not real it,
2: Just There's no brilliant psychiatrist who likes to eat people walking down my street. It's just not happening. Yeah. What is happening possibly is there might be a teenage boy with a gun who's having a bad day. Uh. And if I walk down the street and I say to that kid, you shouldn't throw trash in the gutter, maybe that kid turns and shoots me. And what I like to do in fiction is lure people who are feeling very, because when we read, you're so cozy, you're so happy. I would like to reach people who have maybe never thought that they could ever be the bad guy or ever be the person who says the wrong thing or can't even see how they might make a mistake that would put them in terrible trouble. You know, it's so funny in Bonfire of the Vanity, it's a book about which I have very complicated feelings. The core story is an interesting story. Two people are scared. They're in a car.
1: They've done this thing. They've done this thing. They don't want, to, they they, don't want anyone to know. But, they don't yeah. want
2: anyone to know. They feel like they were in danger. Yeah. They've crossed a line. And so this is where we circle back to Kane. Kane wrote noir. And noir to me has always been dreamers become schemers.
1: Well. I actually went the noir series that Akashic publishes and asked me to write a story for that. And I remember looking up Dennis Lehane's definition of noir and I looked up Joyce Carol Oates and Joyce Carol Oates had a very long, interesting definition. And Dennis was like, I just think it's scummy people doing scummy things to each other. <laughs> and so I was going to ask you what, how you define noir then.
2: I define noir as people who have all the typical yearnings that we all have. They want love. They want money. They want security. But they're willing to transgress for it. Yes. We all want what Frank and Cora and the Postman Always Drinks Twice want. They want love. Yeah. They're they're like we're soulmates. We're meant for each other. We have to be together. Unfortunately, that will involve killing your husband, Cora. But let's do it. I mean, like in Kane's books, there's very little introspection about the line that's being crossed. People it just, just do it. Yeah. And but it's so for want of a better word relatable everybody wants these things yes. most of us won't kill for it and you
1: stop at the doing it but yet these are people who actually cross the line
2: but we're it's pretty interesting it's, yeah. free, it's like what what would you cross the line for
1: well I read somewhere in something online or something where I don't know if you said that this book came to you originally I don't know if the original thing was a first sentence or you had a first sentence but it was something I'll I'll get it wrong so by the end of the story you will hate me what, what are you
2: everybody hates me you will too that was going to be the first line of the book was that
1: your first original sort of moment that you wrote down
2: yeah and, and
1: that speaks to the noir element as well
2: but then I got to the end of the book and I didn't hate the person who said that you know and I thought okay so the whole this whole book will be about who said that is it Adam, is it Polly? Is it Adam, it's Polly? This this book has a lot of twists and turns. Yes. And I'm not, it's <laughs> yeah. just like after chapter two, pretty much everything is a spoiler. But I've been on tour for this and I've said in several speaking gigs, I said for all the surprises in this book, if you pick up this book and you see this sexy redhead Polly and this handsome, mysterious man named Adam... Adam and you do not realize that they will be having sex together very I mean, soon, like, you should hand over power of attorney to someone in your I mean, it's just, it's so obvious. That's the one thing to me that's obvious is that these two are going to come together and it's going to create all sorts of problems. And so in my idea is like, so who said it? Was it Polly? Was it Adam? Was it Polly? Was it Adam? And then the idea was that you got to the end of the book and the last line was going to be told you so. But I got to the end of the book and I said, you know what? Given these circumstances, I cannot fault anyone in this book for the choices they made. And I'm not just talking about Adam and Polly. I'm talking about almost everyone in the book.
1: But that's an interesting thing as well. And I I want me to jump back because I want to talk about this Mm -hmm. opening scene. But the book shifts points of view between Adam and Polly. But there's also these other characters who are each minor characters who get their own chapters. You devote pages to them and bits of the story was that something you knew going in or did that come about as you were creating this world or
2: so it happened pretty spontaneously i've certainly written books before from multiple points of view and once only once i had given a character in one of my novels like, like literally like a page or a paragraph and i don't even think most people noticed it in that particular book which is every secret thing but I started thinking about. I was like, "Well, there's not there are no rules. Why can't someone just show up?" I think subconsciously, I don't think I'd really thought about this. But I watch a lot of television. I like television, and I watch it. I watch what I like kind of seriously and with intent. And yeah. I'm always breaking it apart. I'd become really fascinated with this concept within certain series. Something known as the bottle episode.
0: What's that? A what bottle
2: happened. episode is for example on the show Girls. Okay. When there's an an episode where she spends a weekend with an improbably hot oh, doctor. I, oh, well. And it, it's just contained. It doesn't touch any other characters. Yeah. Girls had a lot of bottle episodes. Mad Men did it. The Sopranos did it. Lost
1: has some a lot yeah, of those. You know, yeah.
2: They're they're like one offs within yeah. and and I thought, well
1: Why can't you do that in a book? Why
2: can't you do that in a book? Why I've really become interested, you know, you're you're so focused on your main characters, but other people are seeing stuff. One of the bottle episodes, if you will, in Sunburn is a video star clerk who presented with some very basic information, turns around and tells a character something that character should have been able to see all along. Yeah. 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 You know, he's like, I've got A, I've got B. Whoa, that's And, and and the other character is shocked and distressed yeah. by this insight and that isn't that how the world yeah. works that yeah.
1: some some outside person can see something you can't right. see i thought that the they surprised me when the, the first he comes later the video clips first chapter is not for a bit but he's very late yeah but there's sue uh, sneed i think is, is the first one yeah and I, but I thought it was and i didn't know if it was going to be oh she was going to be a major point of view but i just thought it added to it gave a, a real texture and a depth It was already so much depth, but it just gave an an additional layer of texture to the novel. So I applaud you for keeping it.
2: When when I was a reporter, I was I think there are two kinds of reporters. There are reporters who believe that everybody has a story if you're good enough to find it, and there are reporters who believe no, not everybody has a story. And one year, two of my best friends and I proposed what to this day I believe is a rather controversial feature that ran in the Baltimore Sun where we proposed that we spend the summer going to other places called Baltimore and just yeah. telling whatever story we found.
1: That's interesting.
2: And I ended up like at a flop house in LA called the Hotel Baltimore. And my friend Lisa Pollock went to Baltimore, Georgia, where she found people. So like, you know, Southerners, and I'm, my family's really from Georgia, a yeah. very complicated relationship with this idea that they eat mud and dirt. Like, <laughs> They do. I don't know this idea. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like really, and like she found this company that where the people in Baltimore, <laughs> really? Georgia, sold Georgia Dirt, mud, mud for, for eating, people to eat. and and so it was like. Our, but our idea was, I'm just gonna. Let, you're gonna arbitrarily say I'm gonna go to this place called Baltimore, and I will find the story of that Baltimore. And some people who read the newspaper thought it was as stupid as anything they'd ever read. Oh, their but I just thought that's how it goes. Like as a reporter, I felt like I should be able to sit down with any person in the world and find a story.
1: And figure out what
2: that was my job. Um as a novelist, I gotta feel the same way. I mean, these are my characters. I made them up. If so you- I can't make them interesting, yeah. <laughs> you can. And I think Deus Need as a private eye, at you know, with her own sad love story yes. that's sort of woven in, and you find out about Polly's mother-in-law, Savannah. Yeah. Or there's a woman in the book who is taking care of her parents who have been made suddenly old by the death of a of a yeah. child, and and it it actually I, I would say that chapter advances the plot not one bit.
1: It's just there, but yeah. it's
2: real. It's yeah. it reminds you that the person who has died who might not seem particularly sympathetic someone mourns her yeah
1: someone They're loved her someone. yeah it
2: has an effect and so i i've actually i think in my next book the book i'm working on now there are so it, it's like, like that actually is the book it's this idea that every person you touch and every person you meet has a story to tell if you just bother to stop and talk to them
1: how many points of you
2: uh up to
1: 22 <laughs> <laughs> I few languages like as i like, essay, <laughs> like, <laughs> like <laughs>
2: I'm on my way, yeah. I'm going. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a commitment. Well,
1: okay, two more questions that I am want to ask if anyone here has questions. One is I should have said, if when you were talking about, when you described the book to people, can you say, for people saying what the book, if, what is Sunburn about? I should have started with that, but I'm not overweight and free, so I do this all the time. <laughs>
2: Sunburn is about a woman who, on a beach vacation in 1995, does the unthinkable. She stands up, so she's going back to the house to fix lunch. She packs a bag, and she leaves her husband and small child and heads off on what seems to be a mission and intent, but she decides to stop and stay in a small town in Delaware where a man has also decided to stop and stay.
1: And that's when the book opens at a bar in a made-up town in Belleville. Yeah, Belleville is a made-up town. And when the two of them meet and it's inspired in part by a th- novelist we both love and Tyler wrote a book Ladder of Years. Yeah, which and Tyler I feel like has had other books about women leaving their lives, but maybe I'm just remembering wrong. In but, some ways she has. Yeah.
2: Um in accidental tourist the couple breaks up in yeah. the wake of a terrible tragedy. They can't keep their marriage going. Yeah. But yeah, in her version of this, it's kind of funny and compassionate yeah, and it's a different take on and, it. But... And, yeah, her character, Delia, is kind of entitled to yeah. leave her family because she... they are kind of jerks. Yeah. But I, I always thought that's... A... so. I remember that book came out in 95 and every woman when I knew... When this book is set. Yeah. 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 It's just, yeah, 95 is the era that Sunburn is set. It has nothing to do with Anne Tyler and it actually has nothing to do with technology, although it was a, a blessed thing to be free of technology. Yes. Yeah. It's because, and it's so hard to talk about this without being spoilerish, there is a concept in criminal law that was just coming into being in the early 90s, yep. in which people who had committed a certain kind of crime, there was a, a developing theory that maybe they were as much victim as perpetrator. So I needed to set the book at a time when this is still a controversial idea. It's a very accepted idea now. It's gone totally mainstream. Nobody would argue with it. In the early '90s, it was pretty yeah. new. Yeah. It was pretty new. It so, new, new.
1: Yeah.
2: so good. I was so. To me, it was the
1: last good age to disappear. <laughs> the last <Earth>. good
2: <laughs> year. Yeah, yeah, the last good year to disappear 1995. <laughs>
0: That does it for this episode of Chat. Don't forget you can read Sunburn on Scribd for free with your subscription. And if you're not yet a Scribd member, you can read for free for 30 days by downloading the Scribd app or visiting scribd.com. That's s-c-r-i-b-d.com. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.